Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions, it's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with certified financial planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Sharon Pierce, I like that Yale shirt you've got on representing today. I am. I had this on at work today. Yeah, did they think you actually went there? Oh, no, they thought I just bought it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh, I had a Harvard shirt. <laughs> you tell them how much that shirt cost you. $120,000 in three years of my life. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot. Oof. Oof. Goodness Oof. gracious. Oh, well, the funny part was is you had to have a letter of recommendation from your last educational endeavor. And so Sandy, thank God, was still alive. because right. she, she was the last person who taught me, and that had been 28 years before. Right. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Well, we know who's in the studio with us today. We've got Sandy and Nancy, and uh, we're continuing our historical series, um, which I'm looking forward to. It's been a little while. Yeah, it yeah. has. I think the last mm-hmm. one was Dagmar and Nelson. Yeah. Part yeah. one and two. I think two. it was. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And uh, good to have you both in here. You know, we've had a couple little hiccups along the way, but you're both still kicking it and oh, back yeah. in the studio. Yeah. So, so we're glad to have you. So today, Sharon, who are we going to be talking about? We are going to be talking about Florence McQuillan, the first executive director of the AANA. Wow, and so we haven't had that many after. I mean, eight. I, We've had a total of eight. eight. Since and that includes Bill, Bill Bruce. Yes. Wow. So there's a lot of longevity there. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, the association headquarters moved from Cleveland to Chicago in what, 1937. Um, the treasurer position was still in Cleveland. And in 1948, that office moved as well, right? Um, yes, yes. And then Gertrude Fife was treasurer until 1950. And then because of uh, an increased workload on, on, in 1948, Florence McQuillan, and she was a nurse anesthetist, became the first executive director of ANA. And we've had several CRNAs that mm-hmm. have been executive directors. And uh, today we're going to have Sandy and Nancy tell us all about this remarkable woman and, and all she did for the ANA. And she was remarkable, and she was another one of those greats that Mayo Clinic gave us. There was quite a few of them. Well, I just went back before we started this, and if people want to learn more about Gertrude Fife, go to episode 126, and you can hear the episode that we did about her definitely quite a, a while ago. Definitely an unsung hero. Mm. Yeah, she That's did true. a lot. She mm-hmm. was. Well, Nancy, why don't you start us off and tell us a little bit about Florence Mac McQuillan's early life. Okay. Well, Miss McQuillan was born in 1903 in Mottawa, Minnesota. I hope I said that right. Well, at least I didn't have Good to Good luck say with those <laughs> Minnesota <laughs> names. Me either. <laughs> They're all Indian names. They're yeah. hard to yeah. pronounce. Yeah. 
Okay. She entered the Central School of Nursing at the University of Minnesota in 1922 and graduated in 1925. She received her anesthesia education at the Minneapolis General Hospital in 1926. And then she served as superintendent of the nurses at Francis Mayen Memorial Hospital in Glasgow, Montana. So she she really went to the Netherlands. That was the boonies, I bet. I that, bet. <laughs> uh, but at, what had she got there? Stagecoach and horses and... Well, she probably walked since she wouldn't ride in anything. <laughs> That's right. That's so, right. Which you will find out about. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, in Glasgow, Montana, she served in a position which also made her the sole anesthetist for the hospital. So a prerequisite for the job in Glasgow was a skill not included in her nursing curriculum, which was administering surgical anesthesia. Uh, training programs at two local hospitals introduced her to the use of ether and nitrous oxide. She had to also learn the use of chloroform on the job in Montana. She later said regarding her experience with chloroform, and I share this one with her, I look back and think the good Lord took a liking to me when I survived several hundred experiences with chloroform, because chloroform was quite a a dangerous uh, drug, so I never used it, but having taught pharmacology, I've read a lot about it, so Hmm. anyway. Her next position was at St. John's Hospital in Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo, North Dakota. Can you imagine Jesus. how cold that was? That was my next thing. She wow. went from, well, at wow. least she could travel in a sled. Yeah, that's right. That's true. So, so is chloroform the truth serum? Is that what that is? No, 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 no. Sodium pentothal. Sodium pentothal. So I always think about chloroform. I don't know why, but I, I thought that was the truth serum. So no. what, is, what does that do for us novices that don't understand what, that? What, chloroform? Yeah. It's an inhaled anesthetic like ether. Is it? And okay. chloroform had its beginning and its uh, heyday um, in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. We were more ether people here. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we did use both during the Civil War ether and chloroform and and on beyond that but i think we use more ether nitrous oxide, nitrous oxide oxygen. because chloroform nancy correct me if i'm wrong it, it had a real tendency to cause serious arrhythmias mm-hmm. mm. it also was very hepatotoxic yeah and that's far one, far more so than i mean i use ether i use cyclopropane i used ethylene as a young mm-hmm. uh, student and young anesthetist but I never used chloroform, hmm. and uh, so th- th- that was. Probably I never good. used ether. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's uh, chloroform is what they use in the movies whenever they put it on the handkerchief and and kidnap somebody. That's what right. I'm thinking. Yeah. That's what it that's is. That's what you're yes. thinking. It had a rapid yes. onset. That's yeah. what it is. Okay. Hey, Nancy, I've never used ether either. Oh, <laughs> oh my god either either gosh that that'd be a tongue twister after a few glasses of wine we need to try that out in seattle this year so sandy how did miss mcquillan get to the mayo clinic and what were her achievements there okay from um fargo north dakota she was called back to the mayo clinic or called to the mayo clinic by the chief of anesthesia, who happened to be John Lundy. And as Nancy will remind you, we just mentioned sodium pentothal. He was the one that did all the clinical trials on sodium pentothal about that time. And so she joined uh, the Mayo staff in 1927. Mac, as her friends called her, not Florence, worked closely with Dr. Lundy, and he was a well-known anesthesiologist Mm -hmm. of the day as a staff nurse anesthetist and as a clinical instructor. And she also had the opportunity to work directly with the Mayo brothers. And this expanded her experience in the evolving science of surgical anesthesia. I'm sure it expanded a lot going from Fargo, North Dakota to Mayo Clinic. <laughs> she probably had her eyes. She had her eyes open, and um, so she eventually knew a lot about hypothermia techniques. <laughs> yeah. So eventually, eventually, she became Mayo Clinic's chief nurse anesthetist, as well as a clinical instructor. Throughout her career, and Mac lived until I think 1981. Throughout her career, she always urged her fellow nurse anesthetists to stay current. In anesthesia literature. She was an avid reader 
And in the 1930s, she established a journal club to encourage her Mayo Clinic colleagues to read and share their latest scientific research related to their practice. It's very interesting. Some things just never change. She later recalled that the club was a most unpopular event. <laughs> that would be like Wednesday conference, wouldn't you say? <laughs> would you say? Uh, yes. <laughs> but the experience led to the creation of a, of a scholarly journal. It was called Anesthesia Abstracts, which was co-edited by McQuillan and Dr. John Lundy. Um, she worked collaboratively with Dr. Lundy in abstracting and editing articles for the publication, but I say that loosely uh, because in reality, when the Mayo Journal Club disbanded, the project was run solely by Mac, and she was pretty much used to and wanted to run things solely by herself. It was a massive scholarly undertaking, and it bore the names of Lundy and McQuillan, but Lundy later said it was all her work. Uh, she gave up anesthesia abstracts in 1965, and that was just five years before she retired or was made to retire or whatever it was in 1965. It ceased its publication five years prior to her retirement. Uh, Lundy said of her, very likely she is now the best-read person on the literature of anesthesia. Her contributions to the development of the literature on anesthesia is not excelled and probably never will be, which I think was very nice compliment coming from a man of his stature, Dr. Lundy. She ended two decades, and it was hard for me to recall that she stayed at Mayo for two decades uh, when she accepted the position of the first executive director of ANA in 1948. And I was telling Nancy when we were coming here today, I was four years old when Florence McQuillan became the executive director of ANA. Wow. She was, she was the best way to say it, was retired in 1970, and I graduated from anesthesia school in 1969. So I knew Florence wow. McQuillan, and she was around a little bit after her retirement. And, um, and yeah, we'll she definitely was, since <laughs> they had to carry her out. That's right. So, so, <laughs> so that, that is true. But um, anyway, it happens was, to a lot of us. They're going to have to carry us out. That's right. That's right. So anyway, um, that just crossed my mind as I was looking yeah. at forty-eight, and I was born in forty-four, and Nancy too. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But wow. I was born that's, after Sandy. That's right. That's right. That would be May. Yeah. May to that November. Was, October. October. Hey, whenever I, I I could not believe I didn't know you were born in forty four, uh, Sandy. I knew Nancy was because whenever we rafted the Grand Canyon, I had to get everybody's birth dates. And whenever Nancy told me she was born in forty four, I about passed out because that's the year my mother was born, uh-huh. and I had no idea that Nancy was born the same year as my mother. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Oh, so Nancy, tell us how she became the first ED of the ANA. So her becoming the executive director of the ANA was really a new chapter in her life. It was going to be very different than anything she had ever done. And she actually got that position because of from because a friend of hers in nursing school, Hazel Courier, who eventually became one of the presidents of the AANA, got her involved in AANA. She really had to work hard, I think, to get Florence to become really active in the AANA. But eventually, what she did was she delivered some very notable and memorable presentations at AANA events. And eventually, Florence McClellan was invited to become the ED of the NANA. What was it? Mm. It was AANA. It was NANA then. then. That's yeah. right, it was. It changed yes. its name in 1939. Yeah. Yes. And so ANA past president, past president in 1966-67, a close personal friend of McQuillan's recalled, we were nursing students together at the University of Minnesota, and we remained close friends ever since. I pushed and pushed to get her to speak at an ANA annual meeting, which she finally did. She was very well received and spoke at the next one. 
People took notice. They began to recognize her ability. When she was offered the job of executive director, she called me and told me she would only take the job on one condition, that I would agree to serve on the bylaw committee. Now, this is, again, Hazel Courier that's talking. I agreed. Ms. McQuillan became executive director, and I ended up serving as the bylaw chair for 16 years. Wow. I would Bless have pulled, her heart. <laughs> I would have pulled my hair out, every one of them, <laughs> if I had chaired wow. the bylaw committee wow. for 16 years. Almost yeah, as long as she was executive that's director. Right. Well, you got to wonder how many people were on the bylaws committee back then, too. <laughs> right. <you> know, so. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one. Yeah, I was going to say. It might have been a, a whole lot easier than dealing with people today. So. <laughs> According to Marie Bader, who was called by most of us Mitzi Bader, uh, who, by the way, was the uh, program director of the Charlotte, North Carolina program for oh. quite a while and was a ANA president from 1968 to 1969. And what Mitzi said about her was she was the right person at – a time when we needed someone to take over the pressing needs of the association. She was a dedicated woman whose life was the association, and that is the truth. Mm. I believe we would not be here celebrating our 50th anniversary if it had not been for the careful charting of our course by this woman. So she never got married either, did no, she? No, never. She never married. No. Hmm. Did she like? Girls or boys? Well, <laughs> now, Sharon, we we were not talking about anything like that at the time. But, well, I mean, you know, we she weren't didn't even get noticing anything like that at the time. Well, you know, I, <laughs> this I was 1948, Sharon. I remember Helen Boss told us, told my class one time, that you know she had the opportunity to get married, but in her day. When you chose a career like nurse anesthesia, right. you had to make a choice mm. between whether or not you were going to be married or you were going to do the career. And so yeah. uh, many of the people that made history were not married. Well, yeah, I mean, now, that makes but sense. But now Helen Lamb made up for everyone, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. She had many. Because she married for money, though. You know, we learned <laughs> yeah. that for sure. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> all well, right so and some back people to some people marry for mother-in-laws yeah. you know that's all i can say yeah all right so um... <laughs> all right okay. so Cindy, tell us about some of her notable achievements at the aana okay. while she was at the helm well one i think that stands out to me is she was executive director for 22 years uh she was uh there from march 1 1948 until 1970 and she was very influential in all areas of ANA's growth and expansion. As far as I know, I believe she's the longest seated executive director of the eight executive directors that we have had. John Gard would probably be second to that, mm -hmm. who served for 17 years as executive directors, and some of the others came and left some quicker than others. Um, <laughs> and, and we're not talking about that today on this uh, podcast. Um, but when she was hired, think of this, ANA membership was uh, 3,200 nurse anesthetists. And the workload was so much with that number, they had to have an executive director. But remember, they had none of the little tools at their fingertips that we have today. They may have had a telephone, and that was about it. And when she retired, the number in 1970 was 14,500 members, uh, compared to our almost 55,000 today uh, that we talk about. She was clearly a woman of vision. We, we look at Agatha Hodgins as visionary. She was a woman of vision, too. And she set the wheels in motion for gaining recognition of the ANA by external groups, one was the American Hospital Association, and we had sort of saddled up to them to have our first meeting in Milwaukee in 1933 and stayed with them until the mid uh, to later 1970s. But we really had no official recognition, and she made sure that happened soon after she became executive director. And she also was very uh, forceful in having us recognized by the U.S. Office of Health, Education, and Welfare 
um, with accreditation. And remember, accreditation started by the parent organization in 1952, and it was recognized by this body, federal body, in 1955. It was during her tenure that Virginia Thatcher uh, published the history of anesthesia with emphasis on the nurse specialist. And um, it was the first history of the ANA and nurse anesthetists. And now we've had the Bankert book, Watchful Care 2, and we'll soon have in our hands, I believe, Watchful Care, uh, Watchful Care 2. Uh, Banker did Watchful Care 1. In 1954, a code of ethics was adopted at the annual meeting and distributed to members the following year. And in 1956, the educational director, which was uh, Claring Carmichael, authored a number of little study books for students in anesthesia, and I sort of cut my teeth on those. Nancy may have, too. Uh, they were things like the respiratory system, the circulatory system, chem- chemistry and physics, and uh, the nervous system and so forth. And the title that we used, uh, Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist, was coined in 1956 um, and, uh, under her tenure. And uh, in 1962, McQuillan and Lundy wrote an important article in the ANA Journal on the risk of workplace addiction for anesthetists. Uh, This was a problem she had witnessed firsthand during her work in Montana, uh, where she had been hard-pressed to prevent a diversion of the little hospital stockpile of alcohol and narcotics. Um, Her and Lundy's paper, Narcotics, and the anesthetist professional hazards was one of the earliest examinations of clinical dependence as an occupational risk for anesthesia providers. And it took the ANA a bit longer. I think Goldie Brangham, who had her life in Harlem, you know, it was in her face all the time, and she was interested in it. But it was in the early 80s, and Sharon, you may remember, Ruth Long from Durham had a lot to do with getting us really focused on substance abuse among our uh, colleagues, and that was the early steps to what we have now as a peer assistance program. Toward the end of her tenure, uh, she instituted the ANA's Voluntary Continuing Education Program, which made the ANA the first professional nursing organization to recognize the need for continuing professional education and the first to initiate a voluntary continuing education policy. And this eventually led to the adoption by the members of mandatory CE in 1978. So that was eight years after she uh, went into retirement. But it started as a voluntary program under her. So I heard that that meeting where they passed the mandatory, that people were throwing chairs. (laughs) Nancy, was that the meeting that you were talking about, mandatory, where we voted for mandatory continuing education? Yes, and that was the one where the business meeting went so long. They were going to have, they were supposed to have a party in that same room, and so they started bringing in all of the stuff for the party, particularly the liquor, and oh it got very interesting after that. Uh, the meeting went on, and, the and so did the liquor, on, and so did the party. And the voting did occur, and it did pass. We but were, I'm not sure anyone remembered the next day. That I, it I heard it was very contentious <laughs> because I pulled I pulled up some stuff whenever I was president about that meeting. And uh, yeah, and uh, Nancy and I yesterday did a uh, two and a half hour history podcast for Northeastern University in Boston by Zoom, and Nancy brought that up yesterday. I had not thought of that, if I ever remembered it, in a long, long time. But she she was new to the profession then, and that must have been an, an eye-opener to Nancy <laughs> <laughs> going to that meeting. <laughs> so this was some of her accomplishments that I was able to find. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. 
Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well, with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile-friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Well, Nancy, let's talk a little bit. Now, she reestablished dialogue with ASA, and, and why did ASA want this done? Well, it was really one a president of ASA, Dr. Batcher, who initially approached Mary Costello, uh, about who was at that time president of AANA, about beginning some communication between the ASA and the AANA. And I'm not so sure. He just felt that. You know, we needed to communicate. We had not communicated with them since the passing of the anti-Adriani bylaw. And that happened in, what, like 1947? Yeah. And Adriani, Dr. Adriani was the chief nurse uh, medical uh, uh, anesthesiologist at Charity. And the people at Charity worried about him coming there because he came from New York to Louisiana and Dr. Rovenstein was his mentor, and Dr. Rovenstein really did not like nurse anesthetists. Mm. So they were worried that the school would close, et cetera, et cetera. But that was not what happened. Dr. Adriani improved the program because he increased the educational component and the clinical component of the nurse anesthesia program, and he worked with nurse anesthetists. Well, the ASA did not like that. And so they passed uh, a bylaw or a resolution, I think it was a bylaw, uh, that no anesthesiologist could work with CRNAs or teach them. And it always, it was always called the anti-Adriani bylaw because he refused to honor that bylaw. Mm. He kept right on teaching and right on supporting the program. In fact, he wrote a chemistry book that I remember using when I was in anesthesia school. He also, they also threatened him with to revoke his certification, and he, in kind, threatened them with a federal lawsuit if they they ever (laughs) came that way, and so that ended. I mean, so they left him alone uh, there, but it was that that anti-Adriani bylaw, as we called it, last 17 years, and there was no dialogue between the two, and and this anesthesiologist, as Nancy says, all of a sudden approached our president, Mary Alice Costello, and said, you know, we need to talk. Well, they had looked at a manpower study and showed that there wasn't enough of either of us yeah. to begin mm-hmm. to meet the need in the future. Sounds and, very familiar. And right. there, was, there was a lot of, of things that the ASA had done uh, before this president came into being. It had this very, very antagonist towards CRNAs. 17 but, years of it. Yeah. But <laughs> wow. Mary Costello basically didn't grant him the opportunity to do this because the anti-Adrianic bylaw was still in uh, in effect. And our members didn't want to do it, no. probably, Mm-mm. you know. Yeah. And so once the Adriani, anti-Adriani bylaw was done away with by the ASA, then there was an ASA, ANA liaison meeting that did, fo- did form eventually. Dr. John Adriani asked um, Florence McQuillan, to prepare a statement as to what AANA would want in such a, a relationship. And I can tell you, if he hadn't asked her, she would have done it. <laughs> she would have told him. I mean, she was very autocratic, mm. very. In fact, she wrote the um, what the board was going to say at the board meeting and passed it out. And at that time, the treasurer wasn't a member of the AANA board. And she had to sit, she or he, it was a she then, had to sit outside the meeting room and wait to be called in to read what Miss McQuillan had given her to read. Hmm. 
But anyway, this is what she, she wrote. Maintenance of the association's autonomy, a guarantee of no interference with the educational programs of the association. And in our podcast that's going to be done on the evolution of the educational process, you will find out that before this, ASA had tried to take control of our anesthesia program. So some of this stems from uh, what had happened because um, McQuillan, like Agatha Hodgins, was very pro-education for nurse anesthetists. So, and it should belong to us and not to anyone else. Sounds like the ASA repeats itself. Mm-hmm. Now we got mm-hmm. AAs mm-hmm. that they're taking mm-hmm. control. So. Yeah. Another one on was curbing of anti-nurse anesthetist activity and publicity because ASA had really done a number of us on us in the media. Enhancing the quality and quantity of available personnel, advancing educational opportunities, and determining ethical relationships. So, an overall improvement in patient care. In 1968, there was an AANA ASA joint statement which stated it is agreed by the ASA and the AANA that recognition of their proper responsibilities is essential in coping with increasing shortages of qualified personnel to provide anesthesia care for the people of this nation. It is therefore highly desirable that continued close liaison be developed between these organizations for enhancing the quality and quantity of available personnel, for advancing educational opportunities, for determining ethical relationships, and for the overall improvement in patient care. So AANA President Sandy Kildee, who said... All nurse anesthetists owe a debt of gratitude to Ms. McQuillan for her courage, vision, and support of nurse anesthesia educational programs without the groundwork of the 1950s and 1960s. We would have not have the strong educational progress that we have seen in the past few years, nor would we have sound projections for the future. But now this lays on between the ASA and the AANA was very short-lived. Mm. Yeah, because by 1974, they had formed their anesthesia care team committee, uh, and it went downhill from there again for yeah. a long, long time. Yeah. Okay, so only about six years. Right. So from and, 68 and, to 74. And then there and, was probably arguments before 74 ever got there. So uh, Yeah. Well, speaking of Sandra Kildee, what was it? A couple of years ago, she got an award because she had attended forty some annual congresses consecutively. It, May, it was a lot. Her goal, it probably was because her goal I've been was to, to attend fifty. Yeah, yeah. It probably was because I've attended thirty three. Yeah, yeah. Straight one. So she she's a little bit ahead of me. Yeah been trying to get her on the courage to lead series she says she can't remember much about her presidential year so she it was a long it was a long time ago and some of us there's parts of for all of us we'd like to forget yeah Yeah. she must have forgot all of hers (laughs) all right well sandy i've often heard uh miss mcquillan was called the benevolent dictator of nurse anesthetists. Talk to us about what that meant and what that looked like. Okay, so despite her many achievements, and and obviously there were many, I don't think there, even her style, her autocratic style, we could have never progressed without it, without without question. But she was not universally popular with the ANA. She certainly wasn't popular with past President Goldie Brangham, our uh, only uh, Afro-American president, who was treasurer and had to sit out in the hall. And when she was called, came in to read the report that McQuillan had written, and then she went back to the hall. And uh, so, so that uh, so it was a problem. She single-handedly, without a, without doubt, held the association together in very difficult times. But her autocratic leadership had really lost its effectiveness. Some of her fellow officers resented that leadership uh, and complaining that she expected them to do what they were told 
rather than offer their own ideas and input. I don't think there was any room for their own ideas and input in the McQuillan uh, era. The ANA Board of Directors usually took McQuillan's side, but these clashes eventually weakened her support within the organization and its members. By 1970, that same style of leadership had lost its appropriateness, and the healthcare system had changed dramatically in her 22 years at the helm. And so it was in 1970 that she was retired. That's the best way to say it, I think. And like Agatha Hodgins before, she did not take forced retirement gracefully. She just kept showing up. <laughs> and, and by then, Goldie Brangham had moved up, and she was president around that time. And she stated she insisted on coming to the office every day, and she was supposed to be preparing a history or something or other. And this is a quote from Goldie. And she was running the office, and nobody understood the problem, and that's when it got sticky. She had that controlling personality, powerful intellect, and personal presence. While she reminded members it was the job of the office to implement policy of members and the board. In fact, she ran the flow of information. <laughs> God, it's great if you can do it. <laughs> so, like I said, uh, under I'll Ma- tell you what you need to know. Yeah. Under Mac, the journal became a vehicle for clinical studies and the bulletin, which began in 1947, a report of members and state associations. And the association ceased to communicate, much less discuss controversial, critical issues. Uh, She herself produced the minutes of the board. And I can tell you something, whoever writes the minutes controls the meeting. I learned that many, many years ago. And that's why I always did the minutes for the school, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) thus controlling the record of business. She also prepared the agenda for the board and would not give it to the president in advance. Uh, How would you like that, past President Mm. Pierce? Um, Mm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. Treasurer Brangham told of sitting in the hall, as Nancy said, until she called in and read the treasurer's report that Mac had written. Uh, At the time, the treasurer was not part of the board, and Goldie became unpopular with Mac when she lobbied to have it at a board position with a vote. Now, several ANA presidents followed after McQuillan, quote, left her position. She kind of left, and she kind of didn't leave. One was Virginia Gaffey, who was president in 1969 and 1970. And I'm going to stop here because Dick and I, one of the last times we we met with Virginia Gaffey because she's from she was a president from Massachusetts where Dick is from and she was on the South Shore and Dick and his and family grew up on the North Shore but we were up there uh, for a holiday uh, visiting the family and uh, decided we would have lunch with Virginia so we drove to the South Shore and had lunch with her and it was a wonderful lunch and then she started talking about the Mac stories then oh yeah and, and dick told me don't forget to tell you these stories that virginia gaffey said so you know you have to know that that mac was a large woman and she always dressed totally in black and she would have these little hats that we would probably call frumpy hats on now and as nancy said she never drove a car she would not fly she would not get on a train. So this was becoming problematic because the ANA was moving away from the American Hospital Association, which they did in the mid-1970s, and we were going to meet in different places. Well, Mac wouldn't go anywhere except <laughs> Chicago. So that was one of it. She had her own personal cab driver. His name was Jimmy. And anytime she picked up the uh, telephone, Jimmy was right there at her beckoning to take her wherever she wanted to go. And one one time she wanted to go to the bank because she had noticed that the interest rates were higher in the bank across the street than they were where the ANA, with its 3,200 members at the time, had its money, or 14,000 when she left, and she got that approval. So she gets Jimmy to take her to the bank, and she goes in, and she withdraws $10,000, and then she... Uh, goes outside, and she's going to deposit in the bank across the street or another bank. And um, so it was raining, and the cab hadn't come yet. And there she was, this big woman all dressed in black in front of this very prestigious bank in the Windy City. And so the 
bank president came up and asked her if she wouldn't mind standing over in the corner while she waited for her cab because it just didn't look good for the clients. And so she did. The next day, she came back with board approval and withdrew every cent out of that bank (laughs) and went and put it in the other bank. Uh, to the flowing tears of the bank president had been so rude to her the day before. Mm. And another story that uh, Jenny told that was so funny, they, they were always in the Windy City and the board that she would be responsible for getting them to a meal when they were in and everything. And um, so they went into a restaurant one night, and that's when everybody smoked, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the restaurants. And um, so the, the waiters brought water, and there were crackers on the table, but then they disappeared, and they didn't come back. They just didn't come back, and they couldn't get their attention, and huh. Mac was really getting irritated. So the, the board members were eating the crackers. She gathered all of the paper wraps, put them in the ashtray, and set it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> At which point, she had all the Everybody's help she attention. needed. <laughs> but but that was that was Mac and um, and Jenny told us those stories. We were just dying laughing. But also Vella Nelson, uh, a North Carolina former president, our first, I think, from nineteen seventy to seventy one, Carol Abbey seventy one, seventy two, John Guard, seventy two, seventy three, and then Goldie Brangham, the treasurer that sat in the hall, seventy three to seventy four, and it was at that time that Florence was sort of moved on out. Um, so she finally retired, Florence McQuillan. So even after 1970, she kept coming to the office and kept, you know, it sort of reminds me of me still going to the school, <laughs> you know. And, but so far, they haven't taken me to they the door you out and enforced retirement. And uh, so Gaffey said, this year saw the end of an era. Uh, Florence McQuillan has worked diligently, and this is a quote, tirelessly, conscientiously, and patiently for the causes of ANA, seven days a week, as many hours as needed in a day. She has labored since 1948 on our behalf for myself and the entire membership. I will thank her for hours of devotion. Ms. McQuillan, you and our leaders of the past have built our association to the esteem that we now enjoy. I trust that our future leaders and members will maintain the high standards which has been set for the ANA, end of quote. But leadership and membership were calling for new leadership style, one of inclusion and joint responsibility for implementation of policy. And uh, I think that Goldie Brangham said it best in her quote from her year as president in 73-74, an effective organization continually looks for ways to involve members and development of plans and policies and procedures on a year-round basis because through participation comes understanding and members can then, as a rule, wholeheartedly support the interim decisions and actions of their board, end of quote. And I think that rings true for us today as much or more so than it did when Goldie Brangham wrote it. Everything we do as an organization, if members become involved, they find um, they have ownership of it. And I was heartbroken recently when I looked at the participation in the election this year. And Dan Simonson had started grafting that from 2005 to this year. He had not done the last three years, and I went back and asked him to please do that. And I had some information that would help him, and he did very quickly. And what was noted, there's been a 62 to 63 percent decline in members voting since 2005. When we went to online. Well, I'm going to go back, Sharon, and I'm going to look at year by year and see what was happening in those years. I think part of it was that. I think part of it was NBC, RNA, CPC. When did the real drops begin? But it's been sort of at the end, and I'm going to try to tie that in with what was happening as we began yeah, to lose members. You know, what would be interesting, too, is to tie that in with global voting. And I'm not talking just organizational voting, but we've seen the same thing with voting as a nation. We're seeing the same, the same drops. For instance, whenever I ran for office, I can't remember uh, the exact numbers now, but and it was during a presidential year, 
people would only vote for the president and the governor and only 17% of people voted in the down ballot in the, whenever I ran for the house of representatives. Right. So we, we do, we do see it, but we have had a history and, you know, our ANA was just awarded a, um, a medal because of our membership. It doesn't really add up in terms mm-hmm. of declining participation, including a ballot this year that they could only get one name mm-hmm. for uh, president elect and vice president. And, but the membership uh, still holds more than probably most organizations could even dream about. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if the how much the employer still supports that as they did in the past. I'm going to try to find out more about that, too. But Yeah, um, they're tracking that. Yeah, I, I, do, um, I do think that the more you involve members and give them opportunities on committees and and let them be a part, uh, then hopefully you can improve that some. But anyway, Florence McQuillan clearly was you know, one of a kind, and, mm. and clearly she did many good things. And at that time, I do believe an autocratic leadership style was very necessary to pull it all together and give us the strength so that we could move forward uh, with a more democratic system. And it was 22 years later before we did that. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Well, Nancy, why don't you tell us about her awards and ANA recognitions? Okay, but I have one thing to say before I do that. I just hope Sandy won't set the school on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I hope not either. It's like right up the road here. (laughs) Well, Flores McQuillan received the AANA Award of Appreciation and Gratitude for her years of service in in 1970. And upon retirement, she assumed the title of Emeritus Director and Consultant to the Board of Trustees because the Board of was called the Board of Trustees then rather than Board of Directors, if I'm, I'm right about that, I, I think. think. You are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and shortly before her death in December 1981, she was honored with the AANA Agatha Hodgins Award for Outstanding Accomplishment. And I, I know that, you know, she was autocratic. She had a very strong personality. Uh, I think she, I don't, didn't know her, but I think she was someone that you either loved or you didn't. Yeah. I was scared of her. <laughs> I, I mean, I was a young nurse <laughs> and she would always sit at the back of the room, you know, and, you know, you knew you were being evaluated, mm. a critical evaluation. And, um, but anyway, uh, during those two or three years when she was still visible, I, I would have crossed that woman for anything. Um, all power to Goldie Brangham. That's all I can say. Our, but I our, think she, I think she justly deserved the awards that she got. Oh yeah, yeah, without really a doubt. Do. Um, and as Sandy said, I do think she was what we needed at the time. Yeah. Because yeah. those were hard times. Like I said, we're going to do a podcast very shortly on the uh, history of our educational system, and you will see how turbulent the years that she was executive director, Mm -hmm. they were particularly toward our educational and certification uh, part of our careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because certification was in 1945. That was right before she became executive director in 48. But certainly accreditation was 52, Mm -hmm. recognized by U.S. Office of Education in 55. And that was during her time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Lots going on. So we talked a little bit earlier that there have only been eight executive directors of our organization, and we came into being in 1931. So tell us who those other executive directors were. Well, the one that followed um, Florence was Bernice Baum from 1970 to 1976. Um, And then uh, she was a CRNA. J. Martin Stone 1977 to 1979. He was not a CRNA. Uh, Nancy Fievel, 79 to 1983, and she had been acting executive director from 76 to 77. 
And uh, then John Gard from 1983 to 2001. The, uh, Jeff Butler, 2001 to 2009. Wanda Wilson, 2009 to 2017. I've got listed in my notes Rodney Moore, but it's not <laughs> Rodney. <laughs> Randall Moore. Randy Moore. Um, Lynn, <laughs> when we were uh, presenting yesterday to the um, Eastern um Northeastern University students, Lynn, Dr. Lynn Reed pointed that out to me. It's not Rodney, it's Randall, uh, 2017 to 2021. And then now Bill Bruce, um, 2022 to the present time. So out of all of those people, they were all CRNAs. So six were CRNAs. Only J. Martin Stone and Bill Bruce were not CRNAs. And um, so we have enjoyed thus far working with uh, with Bill Bruce. And I want to correct something I said on one of the Dagmar and Elson. I, I came across a little stronger than I intended to because I was trying to get that 1941 article from the archives that Dr. Hunt wrote when he gave the talk in Memphis. And it was later published in our journal in November 1941. And I had waited probably a week, and I hadn't got it. And my, you know, I've got the personality of a CRNA, instant <laughs> gratification. Uh, but I did get it, and I got it in reasonable time. So the archives that gives me hope with the archives and our new building and everything. Yeah. And um, and so uh, Bill Bruce and and George, our archivist, um, archivist, I meant to say, is the one that uh, that got that for me. So so that's good. I think he's left now, but they'll probably find in a replacement. So we're going to call you Flow 2? Flow 2, yeah, Flow 2. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot, a lot in common, very large women. Let's start there. And, uh, and I'm making a concerted effort to change that. She's also got on black pants. And I've got on black pants. And I, I do she's wear, not all black. Today. But I do wear black a lot. And I do go to school a lot. I'm going over there tomorrow and give a talk, uh, an hour talk. For new stu- uh, new people that are uh, that are anesthesia hopefuls oh. from two thirty to three thirty. So, oh, are they having their uh, what is that thing they call it each year for the anesthesia hopefuls? Uh, the four H thing. They call it H three A. H three A. But they yes. changed the name, and oh. I can't recall it right now. So okay. the new new folks have changed the name, and I I can't remember. But it's the same thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So I've known five of the eight executive directors, ladies. Come clean. How many of y'all know? I've known all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say, but I, I, but I know all of them. You know, Bernice Baum, she got in trouble with uh, the Talmadge letter that were pushing towards direct reimbursement in the 70s. And it just uh-huh. wasn't time. You know, one of the first things that she got involved in. And uh, that just bombed. <laughs> and the next thing you know, she she resigned. And... Uh, uh, I, I knew them all. The most beloved, of course, was John Gard. You know, I only knew six. You only knew six? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you started with Nancy Feeble. No, that's not true. I, I was, well, I wasn't a CRNA during Bernice, uh, Bernice Bond, but I was. So one, uh, J. Martin Stone, I guess, was the first first one that I knew. Okay. Um, so, seven. But anyway, they play a wonderful role in our organization, um, and obviously it, it is the board who makes the decisions, and it is their job to oversee the office and to implement policy of the board. And as long as they all recognize that, things usually go pretty smoothly. Now, been, there's a story there, but that's not for this that's podcast. Right. It's not, it not always been like that. No, I know that story, too. Yeah. Hey, Sharon, I've known three. Mm-hmm. Just saying, you know. Yeah. Hey, You're bringing yeah. up the rear, brother. about that, you know. You're such that's a pretty, youngster. That's good. Such a youngster. Well, I was going to say I was born after you, Sharon, so, you know. Shut up. <laughs> and your wife was born way, way after you. <laughs> hey, that's what keeps us going, Sharon. It keeps you going. You got to keep up with that young girl. It's the other way around, Sharon. But that's a different podcast. Um, so as we close on this one, ladies, any any closing thoughts? I, I don't know. I you know I just think we owe a great debt of gratitude to all of our executive directors. It can't be easy. Yeah. But I think the one that had the best personality for it was John. 
And if the people that follow, even Bill Bruce and on, if they can sort of study him and what and what he was like, to him he was always visible. He was, you know, always with the members, mm-hmm. and he everybody felt like they were his personal friend. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and he always had a story to tell. He had many stories he never told, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but at any rate, uh, we do owe them a great debt of gratitude. Um, and there will be others as we move along. Um, and hopefully the board will make the right decision in, in their choice of who who will be in this very powerful position. And um, and I appreciate her, and I I really appreciate Florence McQuillan as well, because uh, I, I wish I'd known her a little bit more, and hadn't been so afraid of her. But I was <laughs> I was just young a young CRNA yeah. at the time. Uh, I I couldn't even speak to her hardly. I was so scared of her. <laughs> but um, but at any rate, uh, that's my my thoughts. Speaking of being with the members all the time, I still remember being out on the dance floor beside of John Guard, and he had a towel or something around his neck to wipe his sweat because he was dancing so hard yeah. with anybody and everybody. That's right. Well, I'll He was you. right in there. Well, I have to tell you this. When we were in, at an assembly of school states of states in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, there were some oh, of us fun. who decided to dress up like um, Southern Bales, and mm-hmm. so we rented costumes, and um, I got the bright idea that I was going to auction the bells off for pack donations, mm-hmm. and I sold John Gard to Ira Gunn for a dance for $100. How about that? <laughs> Now that I would like to have seen Ira and John dancing. I never together. saw Ira dancing. I saw John dancing, but never Ira. She did dance yeah, with I'm... him. We played a slow dance. Oh, now did, that's different. She did dance with him. Uh, well, on that note, I think we can have a, a visual in our heads and leave that at that. So, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. Well, we want to thank you guys for being on with us. As always, did a wonderful job. And uh, thank you again for all you do and have done for the nurse anesthesia profession. And, we thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's always a pleasure to have you in the house with us. So, The things that you've started. I mean, y'all educated me, and now here we are on the podcast. That's right. That's right. So see, the podcast wouldn't be here if you wouldn't have educated me. That's so. right. That's and this, right. Is, this is a great, uh, great offering, too. Yeah. No, without a doubt. I think it's amazing. So, The things that you ladies have started, we won't even go down the path of the ones that you wish you wouldn't have, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Sharon, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and... Sharon Pierce. If they like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, how can they help us? Well, the best way to help us grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive. We all know there's way too much negativity in this world. Share us on social media. Tell all your friends uh, we uh, get picked up by people. That doesn't sound right at all. <laughs> well, maybe you do. I haven't got picked up in a long time. Well, I think so. my days of getting picked up are long <laughs> over, but hey. Uh, but uh, word about us travels by word, word of, of mouth. mouth. There you go. <laughs> we're, in the, we're, we're in the top 50 medical podcasts on our NADA. Uh, what? <laughs> on your nay too? <laughs> That's a tongue twister for you today. I swear we've not been drinking. <laughs> Oh, on our, on our we're on our way to number one. <laughs> I was thinking about a horse, you know. We're on our way to number one, like we are in the CRNA community. Oh, gosh. Well, we better just close right here. Until I next think time. So. <laughs> it's a wrap. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. 
and with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com, making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.